Welcome to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was the Millennium and Prelude to Claudia on Thursday. And that's because I've got Michael Fenley here today, who's known for a number of fantastic groups, including his work with the Millennium and uh, Crabby Appleton. And we'll be covering the excellent new Crabby Appleton anthology a bit later on, as well as Michael's fantastic solo work as well. A huge welcome, Michael. Oh, thanks. Uh, it's good to be here. To start off, what kind of music were you listening to in, in your mid-teens that got you um, interested in getting involved with uh, music? Well, at a very early age, I fell in love with pop music, Ricky Nelson, the Everly Brothers. I would go and, and get 45s when I was dragged along on shopping trips with my mom, and to keep me happy, she'd give me a buck and I'd go into the record section. I collected Dion, Ricky Nelson, Everly Brothers, 
And the singers were really uh, who connected with me. And uh, singing became a thing for me when, you know, I'm maybe nine years old and I just sang all the time and was singing along with the records. Uh, Everly Brothers were wonderful because their harmonies taught me just how beautiful it is to have two voices working together. I went on to uh, Motown stuff and Beach Boys and and would drive uh, my parents crazy singing falsetto, you know, fun, fun, fun and all that stuff. My first concert was the Beach Boys, the original lineup. They came on stage riding motor scooters. <laughs> Where were you uh, born and raised and how did you end up in the uh, L.A. area? Well, I was born in on the East Coast and uh, went to uh, grade school in Pennsylvania. And then we moved to New Jersey and uh, I went through middle school and almost high school in New Jersey before I uh, took off for high school one day with a drummer who was in my band that we had uh, in high school playing little gigs and stuff. And he and I uh, hitchhiked to Los Angeles when I was 17. And uh, that was an amazing experience because uh, it was a very different world than what I'd been in on the East Coast. It was uh, 1966 on the Sunset Strip, and it was uh, a real eye-opener. And uh, I fell in love with Los Angeles, and I lived there for um, decades. And how did you uh, come into the path of Kurt Betcher? Well, I was living in coffee houses, and our raison d'etre for being there in the coffee house uh, would be to be the band that would play. The coffee house owner of the, uh, the place where I was living in 67 had aspirations to be a rock manager. And so... Uh, I think that was part of the reason that the, the band got special treatment there. But the bass player I was working with at the time said one day, would you like to go somewhere where we can smoke some really good pot? And I said, well, yeah. And it turned out that it was Kurt Betcher's house. I met Kurt and we were playing guitars and singing songs and he heard my songs and said, I want to sign you to my publishing company. I was just a hippie. So getting paid to write songs was a, an idea that struck me as being pretty good. So I was signed to Kurt Betcher's publishing company soon thereafter, and they would pay me 100 bucks a week to write songs, and I thought I'd finally landed in heaven. And it was not too long after that that Kurt and his wife Claudia wanted to uh, move into a grand Spanish-style house in the Hollywood Hills and needed some roommates to help pay for the place. And so I was approached about renting a bedroom there. And Doug Rhodes, who was the keyboardist in the music machine of Talk Talk fame, he was also the bass player and multi-instrumentalist in the millennium later on. He rented the basement. So we moved in and were living in that house, encountering each other a lot and working on some music. And the millennium was just coming together at that time, and so it was uh, sort of a natural evolution of things that I joined that band to. You mentioned writing songs. We opened with To Claudia on Thursday, as well as The Prelude. You wrote To Claudia on Thursday, didn't you? So was that part of the material that you were writing for Kurt in that period then? Yeah, I wasn't writing for Kurt right. per se. I was trying to Kurt Betcher and Keith Olsen's publishing company 
and writing for that company. And so to Claudia on Thursday, I co-wrote with Joey Steck, who was a uh, guitarist in the Millennium. And he and I wrote quite a few songs together when I fell in with the guys from the Millennium who were all older than I and more seasoned professionals. They'd been in successful groups of projects. Kurt had worked with the association, Long Comes Mary, and so on. Several of the guys from the Music Machine had toured with Hit Record and so on, and they were all older than I and more experienced. And so I was the green one whom they took under their wing. But my singing and my songwriting was pretty well developed at that point because I'd been doing it since I was a kid. And so I was prolific in a way that kind of shocked them. Guitarists will come up with a couple of ideas and, and some chord changes and so on. And very rapidly, I'd have a melody and lyrics pinned to it, and off we go with a new song. And we just wrote songs like crazy. I mean, it was sort of a, a woodshed for creating music that was extraordinary. So we just wrote songs like the Nuts. And the Millennium album involved some of those songs, but there were lots of demos that we did because we would demo for our publishing company for them to accept the songs. And we spent a lot of time in the studio just demoing song after song after song. And those recordings have seen the light of day in recent years with the Millennium demo releases mm. on various labels. You had a lot of songwriters in the group, didn't you? Uh, we did. <laughs> we had five singer-songwriters. And some people would say it's four too many, but <laughs> we actually worked together very joyous. And it was a very creative atmosphere. It was wonderful for me because I was surrounded by guitar players, uh, most of whom were much better than I. I was uh, sort of a folky strummer, very um, grounded in sort of Beatles and folk pop. But these guys were real pros. And some of them were just, I mean, absolutely way beyond me. And so to sit down with them and write songs where they're playing guitar changes that would never have occurred to me. And I'm able to uh, just pop out melody and lyrics on top of it. It was a match made in heaven. So I really thrived on that. To Claudia on Thursday was a song that Joey and I wrote when uh, Kurt Betcher's wife was pregnant and had the blues. And uh, we just went out and sat under a tree in the sunshine and uh, wrote a song to try and cheer her up. And then it turned out to be... Uh, one that saw the light of day. You've chosen It Won't Always Be the Same as one of the tracks to feature on the podcast. And what was it about that particular song that is a favorite of yours? That was sort of a um, socio-political song about being kept in the dark by the powers that be, as was a song called It's You on uh, the Money Amount. We were sort of uh, political hippies. And so... Some of the songs that we wrote were about the struggle to achieve a more open society and more freedom of information. And uh, It Won't Always Be the Same was uh, one of those.
Millennium didn't last. Was that Kurt's personality? Well, Kurt was an extraordinary producer and an extraordinary charismatic figure. And so it was his band and his project. And we rallied around him as a cult might rally around their cult leader. And I know that sounds a little wacky, but this was in 1967 and 68. And those were the days where free ideas and uh, psychedelics and experimentation with uh, various uh, mystic ideas and and religions was sort of the way of the day. And Kurt was charismatic and brilliant. And so it was his band, but it was populated with some strong singer-songwriters and there was a certain struggle that went on for each member to be able to express themselves when there was one person who had so much influence over what we were doing. And many times we benefited from that, but other times it was a struggle. It was crowded in that band, you know? There were there were a lot of singer-songwriters. Everybody wanted to be heard, and we enjoyed our collaboration, but there were times when Kurt's determination to feature himself in some situations 
rub people the wrong way. And so he might uh, choose to double your lead vocal on a song that you were singing and then mix his voice a little higher. That was uh, bothersome to uh, some of the singer-songwriters, and as you would imagine it would be. It's just you want your voice to be heard on your song, and Kurt would put his stamp on a lot of things. Now, his stamp, he and Keith Olsen, and Keith Olsen's name should always be mentioned along with Kurt's when he comes to production. Yeah, Keith was brilliant. I, I don't use the word genius often, but Keith Olsen was probably as much a genius as anyone I've ever met as far as being able to coax sound out of a recording studio. And so Kurt and Keith worked in concert together uh, with Kurt just sort of spouting out ideas and Keith achieving them. And so to be able to work with their prowess was an extraordinary opportunity. And I'm just a kid, you know. I mean, the, re- the rest of these guys are, have been around and have done stuff. I'm just a kid. So here I am with my mouth hanging open in CBS studios watching these wonderkins do amazing things, and some of them are with my songs. So it was a mixed bag. It was a fantastic opportunity for me. But at the same time, there were times when I felt... Uh, that Kurt was overbearing. But, you know, it's relationships in bands are as complex as any other relationships in families and groups. But I think that I benefited so much from them that they can be overstated. What led up to the formation of uh, Krabby Appleton then? After the millennium ran its course, and that was a rather quick course because when we released our album, it just sort of fell with a thud. We thought we were going to be the next biggest thing in the world, and it turned out that we were not. Mm. <laughs> and that came as a surprise. But I was just writing songs. I was uh, still uh, writing for the publishing company and and supporting myself that way. But uh, living alone and spending a lot of time alone and just coming up with song after song after song, not really sure what was going to happen with those. And I shopped some demos and Electra Records was one of the uh, companies that uh, listened to them. And at the same time, they were listening to some demos of a group called Stonehenge that was uh, sort of a blues bass with some prog overtones group uh, in Los Angeles. And they had really good players. Their lead guitarist and singer were not really right, I'll say. But they had demos that Electra listened to. And I think at the same time that they were listening to my songs, Electra, and listening to Stonehenge's demos, they imagined a merger there. And I met the guys from Stonehenge and Song and Play. And it turned out that I replaced their guitarist and their singer. And my material became Stonehenge's material. We changed the name of the band, too. The drummer and I had one of those uh, long <laughs> chats over a table in a nightclub about band names and so on. And we came up with Grabby Apples, and then that stuck. And so it was my songs and uh, Stonehenge's players that became uh, Grabby Apples. And, and uh, we merged really quickly and really well. They had some great players in that band. I mean, 
they were just really extraordinary and were willing to put aside their egos for the good of the song. And that's really something for a songwriter. And so the song became the purpose we serve. And I think our first album reflects that. We really just uh, sunk our teeth into the material. And I was fortunate to fall into uh, a band that was that good and had been together. So we gelled really quickly. You must have had quite a bit of momentum in, in that early period for the group as well, given that your debut single was Go Back and that became a you know a huge success for you. It was a great thing for us to have a top 40 record on the radio because that just sort of cleared the way for us to play lots of gigs all over the place and some really big ones, pop festivals, and we'd be opening for Sly and the Family Stone to 20,000 people or to the doors and so on. But it was also kind of a strange existence for us because Go Back was a regional hit. And so there would be areas where we would have the number one, two, or three record on the charts. And there'd be other places we played that would be maybe 200 miles away where they hadn't heard of us. Mm. So it was spotty. And so in San Diego, I think we had the number three record, but in Los Angeles, I don't, I don't know that we were on the charts. And this happened to us as we traveled all over. So one night we'd be playing to 18,000 people, and the next night we'd be playing to 18 people. It was strange for us, but it kept us humble, I think.
the album's just full of songs that certainly in single form been as equally as successful as go back like uh to all my friends but you did have support with some critics as well including lester bangs oh the critics were very kind to us there were quite a few reviews that gave us great pleasure that they appreciated it. and lester bangs was a fan but there were funny things going on at Electro Records at that time. For starters, our managers were local or kind of small time. The guys who'd been managing Stonehenge were managing Krabby Appleton when we got signed to Electro. And they were not powerful big time music industry managers, but rather small, more, you know, local. So they can wield a lot of power and influence at the label. And then meantime, Electro was being merged with Warner's Atlantic. And there was a lot of changeover at the label at that time. And so the persons who had been our champions at the label when we were signed were soon not there. So I think to some degree, the band got kind of lost in that shuffle. And we didn't have someone who was influential enough to uh, speak on our behalf and make things happen in a way that uh, would have benefited us.
seem to show with um, the Krabby Appleton single "Grab On." I don't think it featured on on the two albums, so kind of fell between the two. Our follow up single to "Go Back" was "Lucy" or "My Little Lucy." It goes on by both names, and that one didn't fly. Whether the national trucking strike the week that it was supposed to ship influenced that, uh, hard to say. We went back into the studio with the producer of our first album, Don Gallucci. And I imagine you know who Don Gallucci mm. was uh, from being a kid and a keyboard player on the hit Lily Lily and uh, Don and the Good Times and then a psychedelic uh, prog group called Touch. Um, but we oh, went yeah. back into the studio with Don Gallucci one more time to do Grab On. And then this was after our first album. And then when it came time to do our second album, we had a new producer, Electra Staff producer, Bob Zachary, who went by the name Zachary at the time. And so Grab On kind of fell by the wayside because it was in between those two projects one that was post on Gallucci and then pre-Bob Zachary. And so we just sort of fell by the wayside. And I'm sorry about that one because I like Grab On a lot. And uh, it gave me great pleasure that uh, Grapefruit decided to include that track on this anthology. I like that song. <laughs> Just get by any way you can, and 
So what was the approach for um, Rotten to the Core? Because it, it's got a bit more of a rockier edge at, at times as well. Rotten to the Core, our second album, we had been playing live a lot. And so we had a hard rock band approach to things for the most part. Although, you know, we did do some ballads and country songs and so on. We like to mix it up. But the band was playing hard and loud. And our producer, Bob Zachary, his background had been more folk and with uh, some country influence. And it was an odd mix when we went to the studio with him because I think the ballads, and particularly the country-ish songs, gained tremendously from his perspective and from the people who were in his black book, Byron Berline, David Grissom. He knew some great players, but our approach of loud, hard rock and roll didn't really translate well with Bob behind the board. I think that it was not sonically the world in which he lived. And so we had a tough time getting what the band thought they ought to sound like down on tape. And I think that some of the hard stuff on Rotten to the Core suffers to some degree. But on the other hand, the songs that are a bit mellower or more countryish really matter. One More Time has got a bit of that Bird Springfield feel to it. You know, I think that my desire to be able to make music regardless of its genre, there are only so many genres that I can trip myself within, but wanting to have freedom to do a song that was uh, clearly countryish, or a song that was a mellow ballad, or a song that was a hard rocker. I wanted it all. I wanted the smorgasbord. And I really wasn't willing to tear it down to a particular, more narrow approach. Let's all do, let's do songs that mostly sound like Go Back or some of our stretched out rockers. And so throughout my record making, I always wanted to do whatever song I thought was a good one rather than whatever fit into what ought to be my classification. Sometimes that worked and sometimes it didn't. I think that, uh, as I say, on Rotten to the Core, some of the songs shone more brightly just because of the circumstance. But I wish that the rockers rocked a little harder on that one.
chosen looking for love so that's one of the songs that you feel shines in particular then yes and also i like that one because it's clearly an indication of uh, what fun the band had that song was fun to play and i think you can hear the rabbit fun with it and again um for the album rotten to the core it, it seemed a case of that you're getting critical acclaim but it didn't fly it just must have been so frustrating you know of course it is when you go in and uh, work on uh, an album and then uh, you have it all done and you release it, you have high hopes that uh, people are going to hear it and like it. But I think that in retrospect, that album is uneven. And I don't know that I hear hit records on Rotten to the Core. I like a lot of those songs, but I don't know that they would immediately find their way on uh, Top 40 Radio. And during this recording of the second album, that's when the turnover and confusion at Electro was really at its height. And so there wasn't somebody who was taking it upon themselves to make sure that the Krabby Appleton second album project was a thing that was on everyone's mind. We had sort of lost our champions there, and I that that record just sort of got released with a small amount of fanfare and and some good reviews, but didn't get the kind of push that you would have. Sandy, she my Mustang Sally Lives in 
it doesn't seem that long for when you were linked up with Chris White, a great producer, but also known for being a songwriter and big part of the Zombies classic era. So um, how did that happen? After Krabby Appleton, once again, I was writing songs and uh, putting together local projects in L.A. and shopping demos. And when I shopped a demo tape to Epic Records, they liked the songs and signed me based on that material and things they'd known I'd done in the past. And then they began to suggest producers. And a producer whom they suggested was Chris White, and they gave me an Argent album to take home. Now, of course, I knew about Chris White and the Zombies, and I, I was a huge fan of the Zombies. I thought they were one of the great extraordinary groups in the uh, British invasion and underappreciated. You know, everybody knows about the Beatles, Stones, uh, the Dave Clark Five, and the Kinks, and so on. But I thought that the Zombies, even though they their discography was uh, brief, was brilliant. I mean, they had so many great songs on that first album and, and a unique sound, too. So I was aware of Chris, but not so much as a producer. And then I listened to the Archie albums that he had produced, and I liked the sound of them, but I also liked the continuity of them. Archie's albums didn't have songs that sort of came out of left field here and there and just sort of a collection of 10 songs. There was an overall sound and feel to the album that had continuity that I thought was uh, really good. So I was enthusiastic about getting together with Chris, and he heard my stuff, and I heard his, and we said, let's do it. So how did you pull together the material for, for your first solo album, Lane Changer? Was that just the songs that you write in that period, or did you dig back even further? There were a couple of songs on that album that were older songs. Lane Changer, I was writing, uh, I wrote that song at, sort of at the end of uh, Krabby Apple's touring days. We were driving to a lot of gigs or long, long distances. And as I would uh, close my eyes and try to go to sleep uh, at night, I would see the white line of the highway and changing lanes. And that's where that came from, Lane Changer. But uh, there were a couple of songs on Lane Changer that I had written some years prior, but much of it was uh, the material that was new in 73, just before we went to record it. And Lane Changer just popped up as uh, the title song for that album, and I think maybe because of my desire to be able to change Lane's musically too, to be able to do a ballad on one hand and a country song on the other and a hard rocker here and be able to sort of switch lanes at will rather than just go down one straight path.
and the sound of the record is typified by Touch My Soul. It was recorded over in England with many great English musicians, wasn't it? It was, and I'll tell you, that experience was just fantastic for me because Chris White, masterful producer, masterful, and not only because of his prowess in achieving sounds and hearing songs, of course, as a great songwriter, but also in his willingness to listen and collaborate. And so Chris and Mike Ross, the engineer, and I were this trio in the studio for weeks, just sort of working collaboration and in a great atmosphere, a great atmosphere. And the sounds, Mike Ross, uh, he goes by Mike Ross Trevor now. Mike Ross had engineered some of my favorite albums, and I didn't even know it. He had worked on the Who Sell Out. That's one of my all-time favorite albums. And I didn't know that at the time. And Chris White was a guy who really knew his stuff. But I was ready with my material. And so it was a, a great opportunity to just sort of dig in and make an album in a great atmosphere. And Chris had a black book that was full of some of the great musicians in London. Now, getting ready to go in and do these basic tracks was a daunting task for me because I had always rehearsed material before recording. And so that was something that I was very used to. We'd nailed down the tracks long before we ever got to the studio. But this was a different circumstance for me because I was going over to Britain to meet with some guys whom I'd never met and practice for maybe two, three days and then lay down the tracks. You know, this was kind of nerve-wracking for me because this was not the way that I had worked. And that's the reason, or one of the reasons, that I brought along Krabby Applin's keyboard player, Casey Fouts, with me to Britain. Some people would say that with Rod Argent available, that's pretty much like carrying Coles to Newcastle, you know? But the reason I did that was because I was able to work out arrangements with Casey here and nail down the songs so that I wasn't just sort of walking in cold to find out what was going to happen with guys who I'd never played with. But when I worked out with Bob Henry and the late Jim Rodford and showed them the songs and we worked them out, it fell together so quickly that it was ridiculous. I mean, we were a little rock band in a matter of days, along with Casey. So these guys were such consummate professionals and such good players and also charming guys. I mean, they really made us feel at home. That was a great experience too. Uh, about half the songs, half the tracks on Lane Changer are with uh, Bob Henrit and uh, Jim Rodford. And then the other half were with other musicians in Chris's Black Book, uh, Henry Spinetti and Dave Winter and Mike Giles. And all of them came in and in a matter of moments, nailed songs down. I think the most the most gratifying time that I spent making a record in the studio was that one.
Chris's black book was really amazing. For the song Watch Yourself, I told Chris I wanted the guest guitarist to play the lead. And he says, why don't I give Jeff Beck a call? And I said, you're kidding, right, Jeff Beck? Uh, but he, Chris wasn't kidding, and Jeff agreed to come down and play out the song. I'll admit to having some difficulty maintaining my cool as God walked into the studio, sat down at the control room, and plugged his telly to my little vintage Fender Princeton app and began noodling around with the basic track played over the studio monitors. Watching Jeff's strings turn to liquid as he played was as amazing as you would expect, just jaw-dropping. Jeff really wanted to purchase that little lamp for me, but I would have none of it. Retired to the outer studio, we got a good sound, and he took several passes at the solos, from which we derived the final lead guitar track. Sometime later, Jeff contacted Chris and said he'd prefer his performance be anonymous. I was a little disappointed, but still thrilled to have watched him play and leave his mark on my song. I really like what he brought to Watch Yourself, and it's the one guitar on the album that is obviously not my playing. Refreshing change.
How did the um, process compare when your next album, Stranger's Bed, that was recorded in LA, wasn't it? Yes, we did that one at Sound City, and I uh, I reunited with Kiesel Thalson, Wonderkind engineer of the Millennium. He was working at Sound City, and I was fortunate enough to uh, have him engineer that album with uh, Denny Bruce producing. I had a band that put together in LA, and so we had that stuff pretty well worked out before we went up to the studio, and that was a fun project, and it was quick. It was quick in that we knew what we wanted to play, and Keith grabbed sounds out of the air in an instant, and next thing you know, we had that album done. In retrospect, I look at the material on that, I think there was a lot of it that was sort of tongue-in-cheek, and I don't know that I had earned the right to be tongue-in-cheek at that point, so some of that stuff makes me chuckle, but I don't know that it makes anybody else chuckle. But Mercury didn't deal much with that record. They, I mean... I don't know why, but they just sort of, they put it out there and it remained a well-kept secret. Don't step on my vocal here.
you're featured on um, the Countdown to Ecstasy album by Steely Dan. It was a few years earlier, wasn't it? Was that 73? Yes. Steely Dan had great success with their first album, Can't Buy a Thrill. And I was contacted by someone because they were looking for a sideman lead singer. Their singer, Donald Fick, he was okay singing in the studio, but he didn't like singing in performance. And so they wanted a singer who was going to do that job for live performance. And so someone said, I want you to come down and audition for a singer position in Steely Dan. So I learned Do It Again and maybe another song off their album. And I went down to the studio where they were doing their second album and I sang those uh, songs off their first album for them. Donald Fagan, I think, is playing piano and I'm singing these songs. Just between you and me, I copped his sound. Yeah. I mean, from the time I was a kid, I was always sort of an imitative singer in that when I heard records, I wanted to sound like that record, and I figured out how to do it. So I copped that sound, and I sang his song the way he sang it. And so when that was done, they said, hey, would you like to sing high harmony part of one of our songs that we're working on now? And I said, sure. And so I stood in front of Mike. They played Boston Rag, and I sang the high harmony part, and that was that. Later on, they got back to me uh, and said that they were going in another direction and uh, that I didn't get the singer gig. And I think that that was actually a smart decision on their part because this was just before Lane Changer and I had my material and my music and my thing going on. And I wasn't a sideband singer. I was the frontman singer in my projects, I'm thinking that they probably knew that I wasn't the side man, mm. that I was going to be trouble, and they didn't need it. I mean, they, this was a band that didn't need somebody else's pressure from someone else's musical stuff. They wanted a guy who was just going to do a job. And so they went with another singer who worked with them briefly, an African-American guy who was a nice singer, but a I thought an odd choice for their style. And I don't think he was with them for a long time. And then maybe Fagan got over his uh, stage fright or I don't know what, because I think that uh, thereafter they didn't have a separate sideman singer. So that was my brush with greatness with uh, Steely Dan. We've next got uh, Sweet Pain from Stranger's Bed. I mean, the title alone has got that mixed element. Well, uh, Sweet Pain is one of the songs where there's uh, the tongue-in-cheek thing going on, right? And uh, the reason I would like to include Sweet Pain in the tracks we choose today is because I think it shows off the band and it shows off how I was singing rock and roll at that time. I think that it's a good showcase.
Yes, all night and all day They'll have to
we could be a combination, baby. baby. From which you never will recover. happened after Stranger's Bed then? Did you carry on involved in music? Yes. I was always, uh, you know, writing songs and I uh, had bands together. And after Stranger's Bed, I kept playing in groups and writing songs. And we would go into recording studios and demo them up and shop the demos. And it didn't fly. I think that the music scene in Los Angeles was changing in the latter part of the 70s, and it became uh, a town of hair metal. And that seemed to be what would draw people into the local nightclubs and also what would uh, you know, garner the attention of record labels. And this, uh, I'm going to do it my way, these are my songs, stuff that I was shopping, couldn't get arrested. I continued to write songs and have bands and uh, record demos and kept doing that and kept chopping them. And some of the, some of the demos I like very much. I have a collection of stuff that I did in the latter part of the seventies and early to mid eighties. I consider some of my best songs and, and best recordings. And so those are sort of sitting in my private collection. Someday maybe they'll see the light of day if I find the right situation to maybe make a, a release of them. And the, Tomorrow We Love song is one of those that we uh, recorded <laughs> spending our own money at a bucket hour in the studios. What happened ultimately, and what made me decide that it was time to hang it up, was that I would write songs that I would be enthusiastic about. The band I was in would work them out, and we'd practice them, and we'd hone them down. And then we'd record them, and we'd keep playing them, and no one would hear them. And so I started amassing a collection of songs that got stale with the band. And we were just, you know, are we going to play this one again? But no one was hearing them but us. And so writing and rehearsing and producing secret songs got old. And so that became sort of the defeated. And so when I finally reached the point of, in the 80s where no one was hearing them, it was time to do something else. It does seem a, a bit of a shame because we are closing with uh, Tomorrow Be Love and this is a, a theme throughout the podcast is that your song's more timeless and, and maybe that will... Uh... The other thing as well is that um, about a decade ago, Sundays released uh, a number of your demos from the, the late 60s and early 70s and it'd be great to have something from the decade after. So um, hopefully that'll occur too. Well, you know... It, 
it gives me great pleasure to have people listening to and talking about music that I made more than half a century ago. I mean, it's kind of astounding. And so when the millennium got rediscovered, people in Japan got very excited about it and then kind of spread. That was amazing because the millennium was a well-kept secret at the time. And so all those years later to have people, you know, some people just love that album and, you know, put it up there with the, the beginning of Sunshine Pop. And this is one of the great records from it. And it, and so that gives me great pleasure. And then half a century later to have people talking about Go Back and Krabby Appleton and to see a release of the anthology and so on. This is very pleasurable for me. And I love getting feedback from people who say, oh, yeah, I love that song or I remember where I was when I heard it and so on. You know, so having people enjoy songs that I wrote or sang, that's a great pleasure for me. That's that's a big reward. It's my pleasure to speak to you, uh, Michael. Um, all the best with the release of Go Back, the Krabby Appleton Anthology, which is on uh, Grapefruit Cherry Red. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, we'll get more from uh, the archives and uh, can continue to spread your uh, fantastic songs. Uh, thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed it.
well up in your eyes and they won't stop. There's a pain in your heart and it won't go away. But just hold on to me and I'll hold on to you. And we'll make it through no matter what they say. for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.